Good Monday morning and welcome to June. June the 6th, I believe, is when this one will show. Let me tell you a little switch that I'm going to take here. We have been looking at how that, that long and troubled road that brought us the Bible. It took about 1500 years, actually, to get the books together and then get them into a reasonably good translation of the oldest manuscripts we had at that time and in a common language. It still was quite rare for churches to have Bibles strewn about the place. Henry VIII was the first king to in England that would um, actually made a law that every church could have one Bible. One. That's it. The common people weren't allowed to have it. And then when he died and his son was very, very liberal and said, yes, print them for the people, his son didn't live long. He died and then came oppression through Queen Mary that shut down the Bible again. So we, we've talked about that. And I started to talk about Tyndale. And as I was going through my notes, I realized that I probably have six weeks on Tyndale alone and that many of you don't tune in for history. So we may do a different series later, probably not this year, but we will see on just the history of how we got the Bible in English. All right. But instead, what we're going to do now, because so many of you have written in about the 80 book Bibles we used to have before 1885, just to remind you, Protestants also had the Apocrypha in their Bibles those other books, 14 books as a rule, until a massive revision of the King James Version in 1885. That's when most Protestant churches removed those books entirely. Now, those books were always there. In the early gatherings, and we've looked at a couple of those, and mainly in the 300s AD, they, the different bishops of different territories would bring in their list of books that they considered scripture. Now, there were several reasons for this, but the main one was they needed to all be on the same page. Most of what we have in our New Testament was on every list, except there were several lists that really questioned James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and a great many of them rejected the book of Revelation. A few rejected the book of Hebrews because they didn't know who wrote it. It was therefore of uncertain provenance to them, uh, which breaks my heart because the book of Hebrews is probably one of my top two or three books in scripture. This love how it elevates Christ. That said, I need to make sure that all the Protestants listening understand something about those lists. They were not gathering these lists to say, these are the books come from God and God is no longer writing books. We are shutting the canon. I've heard that phrase repeatedly uh, spoken by people say the canon was closed at this council. No, it wasn't. The Catholic traditions, whether Roman or Eastern, have always believed that God continues to move and speak through the church. So when a Pope writes a, a, a special treatise, and there are different names for this, that he says comes from God, then it comes from God, and it is considered equal to any of the books in the New Testament or the Old Testament. 
because God is continuing at work. Protestants, some of them believe the Holy Spirit is still working among us, but that there is no writing which is inspired, be it C.S. Lewis or Max Lucado or anybody else. Nothing has been inspired since the closing of the canon. What Protestants need to remember is that that's not what these people were doing when they brought these lists. They brought a list of those books, but they also brought the other 14 books. Most of them had within a few of the same books in the Apocrypha. The word Apocrypha means hidden, and that's an unfortunate word and that these weren't hidden and they're not hidden today. You can get copies and I would suggest that you do so. Make sure you get a modern language uh, version because in the older versions of English, they're quite a slog to get through. But if you get a modern language, they're, they're quite nice and early Christians absolutely knew these stories. These stories were used as illustrations and even other books, which never even made it into that list, were known and circulated. We find a lot of those traditions still alive in our Christmas, our Easter, um, our, our tales of the youth of Jesus. Those still have some resonance and some power. But what about these other books? Why why'd they bring that list? But we always talk about the other list. They brought the others as saying these are useful, they are valuable, they are true. Some even said they are scripture, but they are not divine scripture. I think it was St. Clement that tried to divide things into scripture and divine scripture, but his, his take seems to be arbitrary and without much in a way of real standards as to which category he moved to, so it never caught on. What do we do with these books? It's important to understand that once again, these books were not considered the final word from God. They, this was merely, these are the books that'll help the church steer its doctrine. And as I've mentioned before, they did not believe that those books locked down doctrine. For example, those who were gathering and selecting the books did not think of the books of Timothy and Titus as the rules on how to organize their church. They picked them as divine scripture, but they organized their church in a whole different way because they did not feel that Timothy and Titus were, were written by Paul as a rule for all times, in all places. They saw it as that belonged in that culture and we take the meaning of what God wants and we, we move it forward. There's a lot of room in there for people to get it right and a lot of room in there for people to get it wrong. And people have done both. But even in the selection of books we have, there was a lot of controversy, again, over James, Jude, 2 Peter, as it's, I don't know of any real body of scholars that is convinced 2 Peter was written by the same guy that wrote 1 Peter. It's just so very different. Jude, 2 and 3 John, and really Revelation. But in the Old Testament, there were some books as well that were highly questioned, looked upon as suspect, left out of several lists or moved over to the useful but not scripture category. These would include Esther, the wonderful story of Esther. Well, why? Um, well, even many of the Jews at that time struggled with Esther because it never mentions the name of God. And that really bothered them. 
never even mentions God, uh, except by inference, such as when Mordecai was saying, who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That would infer that there is a purpose behind the universe and the march of history, but he doesn't say, who knows but that God put you here. That's not said. And without the mention of God, they weren't sure it should be there. And this one you should have seen coming. Uh, the book of Song of Solomon, otherwise known as the Song of Songs, that was rejected again and again and again for its overt sexuality. I know that some people will um, try to hurry in there and fill this gap by saying, no, no, it's a metaphor of Christ's love for the church or God's love for his people. I don't buy that. I just, I don't. I think you can absolutely use it as an illustration of love and God but you need to understand that it is primarily a book of erotic poetry. That was something they thought wasn't supposed to be in the book. And so they, they, um, they moved it. In fact, Origen said, you know, there are many reasons. Sometimes they're corrupt. Uh, sometimes we, we just don't want a place given to them to be admitted to authority. And so once again, it was a messy process. The, um, the Catholics didn't settle on their list until 1546. Does that surprise you? If those, especially those who believe everything was settled in the 300s. In 1546 at the Council of Trent, they said, we just have to say forever, these are the books of scripture. And that officially eliminated some of the gospels out there that some people like to call lost gospels. And they're not lost because most of them we have everything that was available to them, whether full manuscript or more commonly a, a fragment or a portion, Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of John, a different one, uh, the Acts of Jesus. There are, there are several of these and some of those still resonate, like I said, in some of our songs, some of our stories about Easter and, and Christmas, but they said, no, 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 those aren't in. Only these books are in. They did exclude a couple of the books, which we can find out why later. Out of the Apocrypha, they, um, they kicked, off the, kicked out the prayer of Manasseh and they kicked out first and second Esdras. We now need to start talking about this. Um, by the way, we could go on and on. Seriously, John Wycliffe only accepted 25 books out of the Old Testament. We, our Bibles were not settled in 300. They were not settled in 1546. It wasn't really nailed down much until 1885. And even then, we tend to pick and choose what portions we read. So the concept of a complete canon, that's, that's a made-up man thing. God is still at work. God still inspires and God still reads. I would take the, the warnings of Galatians chapter 1 very, very uh, close to heart. I would take the warnings elsewhere in scripture. And so if somebody preaches another gospel, like a prosperity gospel or a gospel ba based on violence and rejection of others, or it's something such as that, we should reject that because it just does not fit with the Jesus the Bible points to. Everything goes back to Jesus, and if Jesus can't approve of what you're saying and doing, it doesn't matter what scriptures you're using. 
you are misusing scripture to change your Jesus. Jesus is revealed. We need to focus on Jesus. So, um, parts of the Bible are still questioned. If you've got um, uh, a Bible what, printed in the last hundred years, the last part of Mark 16 will be in italics or it'll be separated because it, it didn't show up for a long time. The oldest manuscripts don't have it at all. We get some of that, but let's start talking about the Apocrypha in our, in our next five or six minutes. And then we'll start going through that as we, uh, book by book. All right. We're going to start with Ezra. Ezra, I know he's in the old Testament. Work with me. Ezra was an amazing person. Uh, most we know about him comes from the old Testament book, but Jewish tradition says a lot more about him. And the tradition seems to have enough weight that we could call it history or probable history. He was a priest, he was a reformer, he was a pioneer who took the word of God out into wild places, places where God had been forgotten. He was an editor who edited quite a few of the books that we now call the Old Testament. He, he wrote the books of Ezra. Now, if you're thinking, we only have one. When the Jewish people talk about the books of Ezra, they are referring to Ezra and Nehemiah, both of those were considered written by him, the books of Ezra. I'm not sure that modern scholars would agree that he wrote Nehemiah, but regardless, there's, there's enough uh, history behind it where we can just say it could happen. In the Vulgate Bible, the, the Bible that was in the vulgar tongue of the people, that's why the common tongue, Ezra and Nehemiah are called first and second Esdras, because that is the Greek version of the name Ezra. Actually, it's a Greco-Latin form, but let's not get too picky. So in the Vulgate, there are two more books that are named Esdras, and they're, they're delineated third and fourth Esdras. Well, what are those books? Well, those are apocryphal books. Those are books that are in the Apocrypha. Look at it as Ezra 1, 2, 3, and 4, and maybe it'll be more comfortable for you. But 1 and 2 are in the Old Testament, 3 and 4 are in the Apocrypha. But here's the thing. First Esdras, which in the Vulgate they called Third Esdras, but in most Apocrypha it's called First Esdras. It's really the same as the book of Ezra with the addition of four chapters. Uh, so You've, you've really got it already, even if you don't have the Apocrypha in your Bible. Now, I'm not going to go over all the arguments um, about why it was rejected, uh, this first Esdras in the Apocrypha, but mainly because it seems that they put some kings out of order and they got quite a bit of history wrong. Others say, no, those extra four chapters help make Ezra and Nehemiah make sense because it rearranges the timeline to make it make sense. Um, and I don't know how to settle that. I really don't. The opening of 1st Esdras reveals an argument around the throne room in Babylon about the wisdom of rebuilding Jerusalem and allowing the festival and such. There's no really big theological point to be made here, but it must be said. Josephus and the early Christian writers and uh, church fathers quoted from 1st Esdras 
as authoritative and quoted this scene repeatedly. Um, there are those, um, well, second, I'm just going to move on. So now you know what First Esdras is. It's Ezra with four additional chapters um, that might explain things and that some people think might confuse others. Then there's second Esdras. While tradition says very firmly that Ezra wrote it, the Jews did not look upon it as something Ezra wrote. They considered it important to be preserved, but I do not believe that they considered it scripture and they didn't pay it a lot of attention. The oldest copies we have of it are in Latin, but it's, it's generally well agreed. It was originally written in Hebrew and it's an apocalypse, very similar to Revelation. So it's very different than the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and First Esdras. Second Esdras is a very obtuse, apocryphal writing, um, very much like Ezekiel, uh, parts of Ezekiel and parts of Revelation. This was very, very popular literature at the time because you got to write about attacking bad people and bad people being destroyed without naming the bad people, therefore you didn't get in trouble. You know, you'd name a beast or you'd name a vision. And so uh, you know, these were all these we're going to win books. And they were very encouraging to the people of the time. It's um, the naming of the book as Second Esdras, or again in the Vulgate Bible, Fourth Esdras, is confusing. Jerome, and I'm just gonna tell you this, you can back this up and play it a few times, it's still gonna be confusing. So I'm just gonna say it anyway, just to show you how confusing it is. And then we're gonna end with you all confused and frustrated for another week. Most of the lists call it second Esdras. Scholars refer to it as five Esdras because they believe that the first two chapters aren't from Jewish tradition at all. They think they were written those first two chapters of Second Esdras were written by Christians and attached to this book so that Christians could use this book as a polemic or an attack upon the Jews. They call, then the rest of the scholars will then divide that into Fourth Esdras and Fifth Esdras. And oh, by the way, in the Slavonic Bible, it's called Third Esdras. Confused yet? Well, you should be if you're paying attention. Um, Frankly, I think 4th Esdras or 2nd Esdras in your Apocrypha, I believe that the first two chapters were written by Christians sometime in the 2nd or 3rd century AD. I don't believe it belongs to the book. I don't believe it belongs to that period. And I do believe it was written by Christians as a way to use that apocalypse as an attack upon the Jews. I, I think that's really what it, all it is. Very few traditions use this book, Second Esdras. Very few. The only one I can really find that leads the charge on this is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And there are a couple of other smaller Orthodox churches in the Eastern tradition that treat it as scripture. The others do not. There are seven visions in it. Um, there's an archangel named Uriel who is sent to um, answer questions uh, about why God allows his people to be mistreated. I like the book. I enjoy reading the book. 
it's an attempt to deal with something called theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, the problem of evil. And as it's very, very early, um, it's, it's a pretty interesting book because Ezra here is praying for the salvation of evil people and he's told by the archangel to stop because people can't escape their destiny and God is going to bring judgment upon those who bring pain to others. Well, I'm just going to let you read it. Um, by the way, a lot of that book is echoed, in my opinion, in some of the polemic in Second Peter. So read them. Get a copy. And, and you can get this online for free if you wish. Uh, of Second Esther's. Read that, then read Second Peter. Interesting, isn't it? See you next week. God bless.